2: Today on Truth and Movies, the Fast and Furious franchise gives up the diesel for a Dwayne Johnson-Jason Statham hybrid in Hobson Shore.
0: you want to tell me just what we're dealing with here? It's my sister, family, business.
2: It's Withnail and Irish for Holiday Granger and Elias Shawcat in Animals.
1: Let's just have a drink.
2: And in Film Club, we're fighting the power with Spike Lee's heatwave masterpiece Do the Right Thing.
1: Hey, hey, sir, how come we getting brothers on a war here?
0: You want brothers on a wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do.
2: Wake up, it's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello, movie truthers. It's Michael Leader here, back in the host chair. Thank you to the brilliant Beth Webb for covering last week while I was on holiday in sunny Glasgow. This week, however, we're talking Hops and Shaw and we have our own dynamic action duo. Forget Dwayne Johnson, we have DJ himself. Yes, David Jenkins. Welcome back, David. Lovely to be here. And who needs the steth when you have the Steph? Steph Watts, hello. welcome. This is your first time on the show, Steph. You are a Fast and Furious fan, amongst other things. Tell us, what do you do? Who are you?
3: So I work with the Bechdel Test Fest. Mm -hmm. So we focus on female-led films, whether they're directed or fronted by female actors, and work on putting them out in screenings across London and in regional areas as well.
2: Oh, fantastic. Mm. Okay, but you're here primarily Um, for... Mr Hobbs and Mr Shaw For
3: some masculine action, that's what we're (laughs) focusing on today
2: We can talk about Bechdel Test Fest type themes (laughs) maybe later in the show But first we should crack on with the big hulking movie of the week Which is Hobbs and Shaw Spinning out from the Fast and Furious series, Hobson Shaw reunites Dwayne Johnson's Man Mountain federal agent Luke Hobbs and Jason Statham's deadly mercenary Deckard Shaw. Previously at odds, here they have to reluctantly team up to stop a deadly virus, which coincidentally has ended up in the bloodstream of Shaw's sister, played by Vanessa Kirby, from falling into the hands of a rogue cyber terrorist played by Idris Elba. Can they put their differences aside long enough to save the world? Let's see. Here's a clip.
1: We've got unfinished business. Your sister took something from me. A virus.
4: It could wipe out half the population. And I want it back.
0: You want to tell me just what we're dealing with here? It's my sister.
2: Family. Business. When it's the fate of the world, it becomes my
3: business. This whole thing sounds really dodgy.
2: Does it sound dodgy? (laughs) Steph, so... As the representative for the Fast and Furious family in the room, where does Hobbs and Shaw fit in? Should we care?
3: You should absolutely care. Uh Why else would I be here?
4: It's cinema, Michael. Exactly. Of course you should care. It's the
3: magic of the movies. (laughs) So this is a spin-off from Mm -hmm. the the kind of main Fast and Furious franchise, but we have two characters that have been in kind of from Fast Five onwards. So Luke Hobbs, Dwayne Johnson has been in them since Fast Five, And then Deckard Shaw has been in them since Fast and Furious 7. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of avenging his brother because the main team, the Vin Diesel team, has taken him out for being evil. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you have two characters that, if you've been watching them and following the franchise, will be familiar. But this is the first film that they've had kind of their own movie and had not just supporting roles. They're kind of the main characters Mm -hmm. in here.
2: And is this an opportunity for the Fast and Furious franchise to get away from cars, do something new, do something different, or is it just egos because Dwayne Johnson can't be in a film with Vin Diesel anymore?
3: Yeah, it feels a bit like that, doesn't it? Like, it feels like the drama. Mm-hmm.
2: Is
4: that is that, a, is that a fact now? Cause they, they, yeah. I mean lawyers can be listening in but like so well, is no, it official I, that they, them two had a major whether it's part of out. the wrestling style theatre at all or not you do have this
2: tension between Vin Diesel who is very much the alpha male of the franchise mm-hmm. and Dwayne Johnson who comes in on Fast Five onwards yeah. and brings a whole new hulking energy to the films mm-hmm. and the speculation isn't there that they couldn't yeah. even be well, in the, the same last,
3: scene yeah the last scene that they were in together was in Furious 7 so you've had one extra whole movie where they have haven't been in anything together. So, so they they were both
4: in. So I've not. I've seen number seven, but didn't okay. see number eight. So right. they, so they were both in that film, but not. Yeah, in the I same room at the same time. Don't think they're in the they same had, room. I think they <laughs> had to
3: work around. Yeah, getting them in the movie, but not in the same room together.
2: And Vin Diesel's off currently shooting the next yeah. proper Fast and Furious nine and film. Ten.
3: Yeah.
2: And so it seems like this is an opportunity for a mini franchise
4: within the big franchise. Yeah. So The Rock won't be in Nine and Ten.
3: I don't know. No. We'll see. We'll see what happens. What drama. There's a big reconciliation in 9 and 10.
2: And does this deliver on the promise of these two returning characters mm. a relatively fresh slate for, for the franchise and so on?
3: Well, I think it's interesting because you have these two characters where in the main franchise movies, their kind of bit parts are so good and they mm. really kind of amp up the the tone in the other movies. And then... Yeah, you're relying on a lot to have just these two characters in a whole movie for such a long time. Mm -hmm. Action-wise, obviously you have The Rock, like, huge kind of wrestling vibes. You get, like, these really good fight scenes with him where they really make the most of his kind of size and his moves. And then you have Jason Statham who gets more of these kind of John Wick Mm -hmm. style Fight scenes. I'm not sure it entirely works in terms of dialogue and then bouncing off of each other. It goes very broad in terms of the comedy. Um, there's a lot of them just bouncing off each other and insulting each other, and for over two hour runtime, that Maybe wears a little bit thin. Well,
2: it's, it's positioned as this mismatched, unlikely buddy mm. comedy, but amped up to such an extreme where their banter involves a recurring joke about sensing each
4: other up for cavity searches. Yeah. <laughs>
2: which I, I'm not sure, well, it, it, it fell flat. For it, me. It,
4: there's a lot of sexual humiliation in the film, I think, uh-huh, of, yes. that, of that variety. I mean, one question I have for you, Steph, actually. Go for it. As as someone who is... As I say, I've only seen one of the Fast and Furious. I'm obviously aware of the entire saga. (laughs) But um, tonally, I always got the impression that the original Fast and Furious films were actually played quite seriously because I saw Mm. that you'd actually done a full saga rewatch prior to coming on here. Is this the kind of comedy spin-off to the main franchise? Is is there that sense of comedy in the other films?
3: Yeah, well, this is the thing because the rest of them are actually really sincere and a lot of it gets played pretty straight apart from a kind of a few throwaway kind of banter lines and this one does feel a lot more like they're going for the comedy approach Mm -hmm. a lot harder which is interesting in that perspective and I'm not sure if that kind of big ridiculous car scenes where you've got five cars hanging off a helicopter if it works as well when they are kind of acknowledging that everything is silly and it's supposed to be comedy Yeah, I think when when they're just like, we are just going to play this completely seriously. We're going to drive a car through f- three buildings at once. Then it makes that atmosphere more.
4: For you're, the inve- you're invested in it a bit. Yeah. More, I think, yeah. yeah. It makes
2: it, it, this is a very strange film to watch, really, because it is in in many ways trying to reinvent that 48 hours buddy comedy vibe of mm. physically. You have Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson next to each other, and they they don't fit in the same frame, <laughs> even an IMAX frame. But then the Fast and Furious films from five onwards was about the ridiculousness of the stunts mm. compared to some of the seriousness of the themes of family and man hugs. But also here you do have the self-awareness of Dwayne Johnson. He's very mm. much playing himself. If you've watched any Dwayne Johnson film in the last 12 months and there have been five or six of them, he's playing the same character each time, right?
3: Yeah, and I think Jason Statham to an extent is as well. Mm-hmm. I think you're definitely relying on these two actors he you know their personalities and you know that you're coming to watch those two mm-hmm. and I think the film is very lucky that they're so charming and so charismatic and they they carry quite a lot of it through.
2: Mm -hmm. It made me think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit where you had Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny and contractually they had to be on screen for the same amount of time (laughs) with the same amount of dialogue. I don't know if you know about this. It's quite a storied part of that contractual wrangling behind that crossover film. (laughs) And in this one, for the first half of the film, well, literally the first scenes you see these characters in, it's it's done in split screen Mm. where they're both off- doing there doing their business (laughs) you mentioned John Wick which which is an interesting point here because David Leach is directing this one his first foray into the Fast and Furious franchise Mm -hmm. and his first film of this budget size he'd previously I forget the name of his collaborator they did the John Wick movies and then they split up and he did Deadpool and Atomic Blonde last year makes Mm -hmm. quite small and specific relatively small in a budget sense action movies with a bit of comedy or a bit of style this one is a humongous movie Mm -hmm. right does that does he translate there do you still have the the panache and the stylistic action sequences of a john wick movie does that work on this scale
3: i think there are moments where you do get that coming through and it Mm -hmm. does work and i think yeah you're saying about the split screen bit whenever they're just showing you their character Mm -hmm. i think that works really well so you have the kind of the rock waking up drinking like some raw eggs and then going to work out and then punching loads of people and then jason statham having a pint and then (laughs) being people up in a neon like champagne bar yeah i think when you're just being shown that that really works and something like john wick is such a visual film Mm -hmm. where you don't have a lot of dialogue and you it's just showing you the action showing you what's happening i think there are elements of that in there
4: where that works really well one of the things that i maybe didn't dig about the film so much is that I just maybe didn't feel we got that sense of athleticism I guess mm-hmm. um, I think when you watch John Wick whether you like the film or not there's a kind of respect for the fact that Keanu Reeves has absolutely he's done the training you mm-hmm. know he's mm-hmm he's been running up mountains and doing like shadow boxing in his backyard or whatever <laughs> he's done the training and he knows all the moves and it's almost like kind of musical choreography it's almost like reciting lines but with like punches and kicks and mm. and sh- shooting people in the face and the the impression i got from this is that we've just got the rock days after he's just pumped out another big blockbuster somewhere else like the, yeah he's probably like done, Two days finished the Jumanji sequel, and he's kind of come on to this, and uh, or something other. And he's just like, Okay, what do you want me to do? You know, like there's a a real sense of like he's just stepping into this film and doing his thing, Mm -hmm. uh, which I found a bit disappointing. Like, I mean, the editing as well. I mean, it's like in Atomic Blonde to to maybe a lesser extent than John Wick, it really pushes this long take thing where Mm -hmm. you sort of duration of shots almost makes the stunts and the the sort of human physical feats feel more amazing there's a sequence where again there's lots of these like split screen or like things happening at the same time or where where they have to pass through these two adjacent corridors and statham's is full of like goons and the rocks has got one big guy which he just you know deals with fairly swiftly but yeah even watching statham's the way he deals with it it's lots of edits it's, it's kind of pieced together it doesn't feel like we're watching like a feat of physical prowess here. and you wouldn't really see the the shared DNA with a film like
2: Atomic Blonde apart from a couple of scenes really as you said Steph the, the scene where Statham is introduced in a club using mm-hmm. a champagne bottle as it shouldn't be used and one character that it did ma- did make me think of that. Was Vanessa Kirby's character, who yeah. is a, she's a special ops British agent, isn't she? And mm-hmm. she has something of that Charlize Theron physicality to her in her fight sequences. That when she can have them <laughs> <laughs> separate from the two yeah, big yeah. blokes, yeah. Uh, she was pretty cool. Yeah, she has
3: some cool moments. She has one where she's running across all the containers, and mm-hmm. that was shot really well. I was surprised that there were no big kind of one take. Mm -hmm. Fight scenes or anything like that was kind of expecting something like that. That's
4: that's his kind of trademark, isn't it? And it's like it almost feels like he's bending to the needs of this big blockbuster Mm -hmm. franchise. There are a few f bombs in there, aren't there? So I guess it's going to be on the sort of twelve A in terms of the violence levels. It's obviously Mm -hmm. been like massively, massively toned down. So I guess
3: that's true. It's surprising though because I feel like with the other Fast and Furious films. The directors have occasionally been able to kind of put their own stamp on it. So James Wan directed Furious 7. Mm. You have a lot of stylistic choices that I feel like are his choices. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's weird that this one does feel like you've got this huge franchise you need to kind of make everything work and
2: well for me that that's because, this is a seven books production that's Dwayne Johnson's production company this has Dwayne Johnson written all over it i think the better comparison almost rather than comparing this with the rest of the fast and furious films is compare it with skyscraper the mm-hmm. Dwayne Johnson film from last year everything from that tone where it's sort of sincere irony with huge set pieces that have no sense of physicality to moments where Dwayne Johnson has shoehorned in some theme or topic or location that is key to him Mm -hmm. and in this one it's the fact of exploring Hobbes' Samoan background and that results in this really long sequence at the back half of the film where they had to go and have a standoff in Samoa and I don't know why that is really in this film. I know that family is important to Fast and Furious, that
4: work for you, Steph, all yeah. this stuff?
3: Michael, why do you hate fun? Why do you hate fun? <laughs> so, <laughs> someone
4: should definitely do a a, a supercut of every time they say the word family in the Fast and Furious franchise. It'd probably, it'd probably be like Feature Link. Yeah, I, <laughs> like yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: <laughs> I think, yeah, we were talking about it. So the main franchise is about kind of you can choose your own family. It doesn't have to be somebody that's related to you. And then this one is exploring the idea of reconnecting with like your actual family that's related to you. I quite like that it took it to Samoa and like Mm-mm. brought it home and you have this whole kind of personal thing. And when they come out and do the hacker Mm-mm. before they're about to fight Idris Elba's character, I got tingles. It was good. Oh, okay, I thought it was cool. great. We should talk about
2: Idris. You know, he yeah. is such a compelling screen presence and this is maybe the fourth or fifth film where he's happily taken a villain role or a supporting role mm-hmm. and... I felt like this one that he's just wandered off from one of his Sky TV ads. Yeah. <laughs> sort of phoned it in with as broad a Cockney as he can it's, live it's,
4: it's really interesting because, like, if you've seen the trailer, you, you've kind of seen the film. Uh-huh. And there's, there's a lot of the best lines in there and the one about where he goes, you know, I'm black Superman. Yeah. But that pitch is actually far more compelling than the reality of the situation, <laughs> which is r- super vague. Which is the Superman film where, like, the guy it's one of the it's one of the bad, is it for it, you it, talk it, a nuclear man it could be where, where, some, where a guy is in a sort of machine and all this kind of metal is kind of magnetising or he gets turned into a machine oh I don't know I, the I, listeners I, are shouting yes, at the phone right now they yeah <laughs> but um it's like the most absolute shorthand vague he stands on a platform and some lights shine on him mm-hmm. and and he goes ah and and you're like what what is actually happening <laughs> you never get any distinct sense of like what his powers are or why he's you know why he's superhuman how
2: Um, he's more Robocop or Terminator than Superman isn't he he's he's been given augmentations you have these point of view shots a few times where there's this overlay which comes up with hilarious percentage chances of whether a punch (laughs) will connect like Statham's (laughs) going to come towards him says 98.7% chance of punch attack
3: imminent (laughs) and he's got a metal spine I think yes yeah
2: but really, this is interesting though, Steph. Right, Fast and Furious relatively grounded franchise apart from the bits where I don't know. Uh, apart
3: from the jumping out of planes yeah, and cars, exactly. And, yeah,
2: but this is full on sci-fi, right? Yeah, Does it's it work?
3: Proper kind of spy, mm-hmm. espionage, and sci-fi stuff. Um, I think it works. I think mm-hmm. it would have been nice to see more Idris Elba stuff. Mm-hmm. I think because yeah, like you said, it is quite vague. It's just <laughs> you know he's bad you get some scenes like kind of trying to explain it but you you don't really get a lot of the thing that. i think
4: if you had more of a sense of his powers and something distinct about what he is mm. able to do and like some mm. damage he's able to inflict then i just feel it would would have maybe made the stakes maybe would have been a bit higher it's- i i mean this <clears> is this for me was like individual moments you know they're quite fun but it was a zero stakes thing yeah. it was like there was never any doubt of like Mm -hmm. what's going to happen, how's Mm -hmm. it going to turn out It's a barely written film right? (laughs) and and, uh, as you say about Brixton
2: it's a classic weak screenwriting problem of he's omnipotent until the moment where the themes of the film take away his power (laughs) and the resolution of of that theme and the way they can overcome it at the end is so dumb, it really is there are a few moments, some really bad lines and exchanges and really on the nose bits of
4: storytelling and character element in this film that I really couldn't stop myself from groaning. Can, can I just say, this is maybe a little bit off piece, but so we went and saw the film together, mm-hmm. and we were sat either side of my colleague, Hannah Woodhead. Uh-huh. And for her, this is a huge event movie of, yeah. of the year, and, you know, she, something that she's been excited about for many, many months. And it was a joy for me to experience the film alongside her. And I think that a lot of my pleasure from it was actually radiating from her. She saw the Oh sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. She saw the, the 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 there is you know, some superficial and maybe worse deficiencies there as a piece of like narrative cinema. She totally like embraced them. Mm. It it had a kind of rowdy drive in vibe for her where it's mm. like it's kind of vague awfulness and the sort of slightly shoddy script and the the ways that they're linking the story and Getting, you know, furthering the story was so sort of weak that actually it was really enjoyable and funny mm. that it almost had that kind of inverse ironic effect.
2: And in some ways quite criticism proof if it's best enjoyed with a few beers and friends and pizzas on yeah. a Friday or Thursday But at the same
4: time as we're speaking Hannah is actually writing a review of it so mm-hmm. this is purely impressionistic on my part so she might actually have a very intellectual deep take on this film and may reveal depth that we have not Scene, so I don't okay. want. I don't want to just say that that is her take on the film, but mm-hmm. that there was a sort of ambient giggle all the way through, and it was <laughs> it was very charming. It is it, it, one of those
2: films to watch with with friends yeah. as well. I, I hear that Hannah has all sorts of Fast and Furious content planned for the coming weeks as well via the newsletter. Yes, so- we've got
4: a tripartite newsletter on, on on this film and also we were having a really interesting discussion before and maybe this is for another week, another podcast, another format even, but there's a discussion about whether The Rock is a sexual figure and, <laughs> and has he ever been a convincing romantic element in a film. Uh, you know, has his character ever ever convincingly had a, had a romantic relationship with another character? Her take is no. Do you have a, a take, Steph?
3: I don't know. I think all I'd say is that in this franchise, he's probably in the perfect place because you have so many kind of beautiful, muscled, oiled people, but there are no sex scenes at all. So it's so weird that it's simultaneously very kind of frustrated, but also... Mm-hmm. Very kind of PG and yeah, not like sexual at all. So I guess he's in the right place if that's yeah.
2: He's, he's found his, his perfect spot. Yeah. Let's, he's found his uh, family. Perfect. Let's bring this one home, Steph. What would you what scores would you give this in anticipation, enjoyment in retrospect?
3: It has to be five for anticipation. I was <gasps> so excited to see this movie from the first trailer. I was so hyped up. And then maybe fours for enjoyment and retrospect. Um, I still think it's great fun. There's definitely some flaws that maybe can't be forgiven as much as the rest of the franchise, but mm. I think it's a lot of fun.
2: Wow.
4: David? My anticipation was three. That was purely channelled through Hannah's anticipation. <laughs> so it was more of a kind of, does she know something that I don't know? So I, I was semi-excited to see it. Mm. I mean, if if I'm being like very, very objective about it I didn't think it had that much going for it I'm afraid and uh, I'd probably say like twos it wasn't a good movie for me <laughs> sorry <laughs> well you're not alone really
2: David I, I agree with you I, I have enjoyed Fast and Furious films in the past I think they have their place and they're enjoyable but for this one they always toe that line between dumb fun and being plain dumb I think this one crossed over too much and too often in that one, so probably
4: three, two, two for me across the board. So having only seen number seven, I definitely remember that having more of a kind of mm. distinct wow factor to mm-hmm. some of the stunts and some of the storyline, mm-hmm. which I think this just didn't have. So mm-hmm. it was a shame but mm. But we have a smorgasbord mm-hmm.
2: of responses to Hobson Shaw there, which is out in cinemas this week. But we have one more new release to come, which is Animals. Directed by Sophie Hyde and adapted from the novel by Emma Jane Unsworth, Animals follows two 30-something soulmates and hedonistic revellers residing in Dublin. Their friendship is about to be put to the test though, as Laura, played by Holiday Granger, starts a relationship with a responsible classical pianist, much to the concern and dismay of cynical bestie Tyler, played by Elia Shawkatz.
3: Isn't marriage part of the whole system we've been railing against all these years? (laughs) The stuff you do because you feel you should rather than because you actually want to? Yeah, but I do want to marry Jim. No, you don't. You've just been conditioned to feel that if you don't, your life is somehow less valuable. Let's just have a drink. Why don't you try one on? We can do a montage! Marriage, by definition, is archaic and oppressive. What about gay marriage? Is that a proposal? If I could marry you, Tyler, I would. I wouldn't marry you. I wouldn't put you through that. See, I have principles. I have principles. And my feminism is about blazing a new way through old traditions.
2: A clip from Animals there. Uh, David, in the intro, I went for a pun with Nail and Irish, There's being a, an Irish film with maybe a similar dynamic to With and I, this friend, long standing friendship that may be fi- coming to its final days. Is that kind of Yeah, it? I
4: think that just about holds water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'd go with that. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of buddy movie with a sort of vague melancholic tinge to it where you have these two characters in uh, Dublin who are party animals. There's lots of kind of drinking montages and Mm -hmm. doing shots and scenes of them staggering around the streets uh, in the wee hours Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to kind of establish their hard party credentials. And fairly swiftly from that, the film explores this idea of when is it time to grow up? When is it Mm -hmm. time to accept responsibility of adulthood and... In Holiday Granger's character, um, Laura, she almost takes centre stage a bit more. She's probably the main character in it, mm-hmm. the eye, rather, yeah. where Alia Shulkat is with now. All the people that she, around her, are kind of confronting her with the fact that she is, like, wasting time and could be doing all these other things and maturing and accepting. And it kind of goes against her kind of punk credentials and punk ideals of being uh, young, free and single and being able to just... Get up and do drugs and not abiding by the the run of things so um, her sister is having a baby and she gets together with this guy called Jim played by Frafie, the Northern Irish actor who is a concert pianist and they have a kind of sweet relationship but she very much is alienated by the fact that he is quite controlled and almost has this sort of vaguely straight edge attitude (laughs) to his professional career in that because he's so serious about doing his concert pianist mm-hmm. thing that he won't drink and party or he you know or does so in quite massive moderation compared to her, it sort of explores this idea of well, is that a personal affront to her and I guess one other thing to mention is she's also an aspiring author uh-huh, yes, so you have this sort of teased idea of that she does have this serious artistic project that is whirring away in the background you quickly learn that she's writing a rate of one page a year so um, if she wants to be serious about this then she needs to make a change and mm-hmm. I think the film it then looks at how she maybe convinces herself that she doesn't want to make that change and she doesn't want to conform basically mm-hmm. so, so that was quite a long winded uh, explanation of, of things. <laughs> but but. It, it,
2: there is quite a lot to this really, It's, it's, a, it's. A, but I suppose at the heart of it all it's a film about Female friendship at a certain time of your life, mm-hmm. and when your responsibilities may be changing, your priorities may be changing, but it's also a portrait of, for want of a better word, messy female characters, mm. of which we are seeing more, uh, seemingly with with every passing year. Of course, this year the sort of towering example of that is Fleabag. Um, but is this a, does this stand alongside that for you, Steph? Uh,
3: I think yeah. I think it's really nice to see these kind of Flawed and messy mm. female characters, and let them kind of do their thing and kind of judge themselves as well. I mean, mm. the boyfriend doesn't ever, he's not ever like, get your life together, you're a mess, or anything like that. He kind of just lets her do her thing. And I think it's, yeah, it's nice to see those characters come to their own conclusions about what they're doing. And I think Holiday Granger's character, Laura, definitely is kind of really interesting on that front because she's kind of the main mm-hmm. character in the movie. And I think she handles that material really well of kind of being a mess, but also having aspirations and trying to work out what she wants to do mm-hmm. um, and whether it's all a waste of time or yeah. not. Had you seen Holiday Granger
2: I think, before? I think I've only seen her in small roles in films like The Riot Club. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's actually from Manchester. She's putting on quite a convincing Irish accent in this film, although I can't really judge not being <laughs> Irish. But I thought she was such a good central protagonist in this film with the energy she was bringing in quite stark contrast to Alia Shawkat who I've seen in plenty of things that I love her, her for, you know, Arrested Development Search Party and she felt miscast in this film as the great <laughs> whirlwind who is the life of the party but also is almost stopping everyone else from growing
4: up at the same time she felt awkward in that role, what do you think David? I did think that there was a bit of a chemistry mm. imbalance there maybe. It, it, maybe less that it didn't work, the more that I didn't feel convinced of their setup and their friendship and that these two people would necessarily be in this situation and have this kind of mutual fondness for one another. Mm-hmm. It was it was hard to imagine how that came about. Considering mm-hmm. it really needs to
2: sell that central dynamic because and maybe this is where it falls down for me as somebody who's probably closer to the the relatively straight edge classical pianist guy when you have so many scenes and it felt like so many scenes of them dipping their fingers into various it wasn't sure that that? various drugs. Just mysterious uh, drugs. <laughs> Misc drugs. Um, it just felt like it's just really, God, it seems, it seems exhausting living this life. It's it, it is supposed. You're supposed to feel conflicted, right, watching mm-hmm. a film like this. You want them to be able to enjoy themselves and stay true to that, as you say, punk spirit, although they're not really punks, they're just these young bohemians,
4: I suppose. Rather than selling out and living in the suburbs with a baby,
2: it has to push it to those extremes. Is,
4: this is actually something that I, I maybe have got some misgivings about in the film, is that I mean, maybe this says more about me than the, than, than, the, than the film, but I'm not sure the film really did enough to convince you that, of that tension between mm. the two worlds. I was watching the film thinking, again, this probably says more about me. You can conform a bit and still have fun. You know, it's not that you, you don't. It's, it's not completely like mutually exclusive. It kind of played these two worlds as like it's all or nothing. Uh-huh. If, you, if you're having a relationship with this guy, you have to be like him. Mm-hmm you have to almost allow him to subsume your identity. Mm -hmm. That tension just seemed a little bit weird for me, yeah. And it's, it's played at, at the at extremes sometimes for comic value as well. The, the the
2: sister character who has settled down to have a baby, they have a flashback to one of their raucous nights out where mm. she just stands upon a bar, strips off naked and sets her pubic hair on fire by accident. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and I, maybe I've never been to Dublin, but is this really what the nightlife's like? <laughs> uh, Steph, was this resonating for you or was it not quite? Yeah, I don't know. I
3: think you're kind of being dropped in to this friendship and it does feel weird because you don't really understand why they're friends. I think Alia Shawkats, yeah, she just feels quite awkward and mm-hmm. all of her lines are very kind of one-dimensional and um, she they're doesn't They're very liney, aren't they? Yeah. They're
4: very kind of, they're, they feel quite written. Yeah, it doesn't feel mm. like
3: she's a real person, just feels like she's saying mm. those lines. But I guess, I mean, they've been friends for 10 years, maybe kind of us being dropped in to this point if you're coming at this friendship from an outside perspective and you're like why are they even friends that's kind of them realising that actually they have grown apart and it's time to either grow up or carry on on this kind of crazy punk lifestyle and I think the thing of kind of change might mean closing doors so yeah growing up might mean never having it. another night of fun in your life is um, Holiday Granger's character's mm-hmm. kind of predicament. So I think, yeah, her kind of working through that and being able to reconcile with the fact that growing up doesn't necessarily mean that you're a completely new person, completely different. You can still have bits of the past, but, yeah, her kind of clinging on to that lifestyle and that friend that is representative of that. And it's quite nice to see a kind of friendship breakup rather than a romantic breakup as the main um yeah. element of the film because yeah sometimes that can be worse than a romantic breakup like mm-hmm. somebody that you've been friends with for like 10 years suddenly realizing oh this isn't working anymore what are we going to do are we still friends like do i move out that kind of dynamic is really interesting on screen and I quite like to see films dip
4: into that it's interesting you said because i actually wonder if there maybe was a bit of a romantic undertow there to it all. Like, I sometimes got a sense that Alia Shawkat's character was maybe, mm. you know, enamoured with Holiday Granger in a way that was mm. more than Friends. But mm. I guess, I, I don't think the film pushes that too far. But mm. I think, um,
3: Yeah, it's just because she's, like, jealous. She doesn't want to share it with anyone, and that does come off in yeah, yeah. that kind mm-hmm. of way.
4: Michael, can I ask you a question about this? I'd go for it. I know I'm not meant to do this, but there was a scene that involving a, a newborn baby <laughs> which as recent parents both um i was almost had to hide my eyes in that scene because uh, <laughs> let, let, let me just quickly set it up laura's sister has has a baby in it and they're invited around to meet it for the first time i can't remember if it's a he or a she the baby but mm-hmm. they get like totally wasted beforehand and they're dabbing their drugs as well <laughs> and why they would let two drunk drugged up people in the vicinity of a baby (laughs) holding a baby with a glass of wine with the other hand is that was maybe a bit contrived for me (laughs) I think in general the use of a
2: a baby and and motherhood is is, is, there are some fantastic uh, explorations of impending motherhood or not necessarily feeling the calling for motherhood in literature in films and so on I, I don't think this really stands alongside those but yes a couple of scenes where a baby is used as a thematic prop. A, a, a later <laughs> scene where she is attempting to present herself as more responsible, she holds the baby and almost rocks it to sleep and after rocking it to sleep just lays it on the floor <laughs> as opposed to back in the crib. That, you
4: see, that for me felt more honest and yeah, truthful yeah. And, and I thought it was a really sweet scene, whereas like the one, it almost kind of like, yeah. Putting a baby in peril as yes. an example mm-hmm. of how mm, how close they are
2: to hitting rock bottom is a bit much yeah. more Let's put some scores on this, David. I'll, I'll come to you first.
4: Maybe I'd say a three or a four in anticipation. Like you know, it'd been at Sundance and seemingly well liked. I like both the, the leads in other things, mm-hmm. so yeah, a three in in enjoyment and two in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I thought it had some good stuff in it, but the more I think about it, it falls apart a little bit. But you know, there are, there are some people who really like this film, mm-hmm. and, I, and I kind of and I get that.
2: Yeah, Steph.
3: Maybe a four for anticipation, because I'd heard around that people were enjoying it, and it was really good, and then, yeah, maybe a three in enjoyment and three in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I think just thinking about it when yeah, when I first finished it, I was like,, oh, it was fine, but I think thinking about it now, there's maybe a few more themes and ideas that that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. yeah,
2: I think th- three's all the way for me, really. I appreciated the frankness. a a film like this talking about sex and drugs and not not necessarily rock and roll but the frustrations of growing old and friendship as well but for me there are films that do that better and this doesn't really rank alongside those however what I will take away from this is I will seek out whatever Holiday Granger does next. I love the energy she brought to this Also
4: film. worth seeking out is, is Sophie Hyde, director Sophie mm-hmm. Hyde's previous film, 52 Weekends. Yes, yes. Which she's an Australian a, filmmaker. Yeah, she's right? an Australian filmmaker, and this is a bit more experimental, and it's watching a family relationship over 52 Weekends while... A character transitions and it's re- really nice film
2: okay would you recommend seeking that out instead of going out to see it almost?
4: oh no th- this feels very different mm-hmm. so yeah I don't know I don't know why I said that <laughs> <laughs> but worth, worth <laughs> look, looking into if, it if, 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 if that price if, if, is if you're wanting to do some Sophie Heide tourism uh-huh. deep research due diligence then it's there for the taking
2: fantastic so those are the two new releases in cinemas this weekend up next in Film Club we have a re-release the 30th anniversary of Do the Right Thing Yes, back in cinemas this week to mark its 30th anniversary as Spike Lee's simmering social comedy drama Do The Right Thing. Set across one hot summer's day in Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood of Brooklyn, the film documents the tensions that arise as the mercury rises. Critically acclaimed on release and commonly held up as Spike Lee's masterpiece, Do the Right Thing was overlooked by the Academy once the Oscars came around in 1990. The big winner that year, much to Spike Lee's frustration, was Driving Miss Daisy. But let's get back on topic. For Do the Right Thing, here's a clip. Yeah.
4: Yo, Mookie. Mook. Okay. Mookie. So you know what?
2: How come get your no brothers up on a wall. Man, ask Sal, right? Hey, hey Sal, how come I got the brothers up on the wall here? You want brothers on a wall?
0: Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria.
1: American-Italians on a wall only.
4: Take it
1: easy, huh? and, and you, Hey, don't start with me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine,
4: Sal, but uh, you, you own this rarely do i see any american italians eating in here all i see is black folks so since we spend much money here we do have some sex
2: a clip from do the right thing there that it's two oscar animations that it finally received were best original screenplay and supporting actor for danny aiello and i think really he should have won for just for the way he pronounces pizzeria <laughs> in that scene uh, steph so do the right thing is this a film you've watched rewatch was the first time viewing for you
3: yeah this was a rewatch for me Mm -hmm. so i went through uh while i was at uni actually watched do the right thing and then kind of watched a bunch more spike lee Mm because it was a huge blind spot for me and it was so great to rewatch it and just really kind of get back into it and remember why I loved it so much the first time I watched it. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. It really is for me one of those films that just every second of this film is just full of life and Mm. verve and style, great writing, great choices in the Mm. way it's filmed. And then as he did last year with Black Klansman a great turn at the end, which leaves you with something complicated and horrific to sit on and ruminate for years afterwards and then go back and see if your thoughts
4: and feelings have changed over the years. It's one to really live with. David, have you mm-hmm. lived
2: with this film over the years as well, revisited
4: it? Yeah, I've seen, seen it many, many times, and it's definitely one of those films where... You can't just watch five minutes of it. You you can't you know mm-hmm. you can't just dip in. I've, I've probably watched it about ten times mm-hmm. in, in my life, and you know I still see something new every yeah. single time, which I think is a sign of a really great masterpiece for the ages. I mean, one of the really simple things that makes this film as great as it is, it's an ensemble film, and mm-hmm. you, you know it's got you got many you know twenty thirty characters yeah. in it, mm-hmm. and they're all amazing. Like every single character. Has a life, has a heart, has a story, has charisma. Is beautifully written, has great lines. I think that there's been some criticism, actually, maybe more so in that academia about how Spike Lee writes female characters. Mm-hmm. And in this film, like there is a sort of macho, male-dominated element to to how the film progresses mm-hmm. with regard to this altercation of whether Sal's pizzeria should have African American portraits mm-hmm. on the wall. Watching it again, I think there is some really. The female characters, you've got Mookie's sister, who's this very sort of calming presence, maybe the most calming presence in the film, Mm -hmm. and a very fascinating counterpoint to a lot of the other stuff that's happening. And then you've got like the character of Mother Sister. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She sort of sits on her windowsill. Mm -hmm. The fascinating thing I find about this film is like it's very gritty and it's set in Brooklyn on the streets in the heat. There is a kind of like classical theatrical Mm -hmm. element to it of characters watching over sets of characters you know the senior love daddy as well who is the kind of the bard or the, the chorus and and I think the character of, of mother sister is, is fascinating she seems very calm and collected and philosophical in a very short amount of screen time you get a sense of a life lived yeah. and experience and in the end I've never noticed this before actually it's just something mm-hmm. that completely new so in the end Mookie throws a, a bin through Sal's pizzeria, you know, following a kind of violent altercation with the police, mother-sister is actually out there screaming, burn it down, burn it down. And it seems very counter to her character as presented up to that but it's absolutely fascinating and then there's, a, there's almost another kind of about face straight after where another character Damir played by the amazing actor Ozzy Davis and a director as well mm-hmm. he's consoling her and you, you, you really get this kind of sense of these two characters Damir and Mother Sister they've been there and they've seen this and that they are running off on impulses that have been there in the past mm-hmm. but no god it's so so amazing I, I love I love Demare and,
2: and Mother Sister. Their their relationship. The scene that stuck out for me rewatching this time was the scene with uh, with Mookie's sister, played by Joey Lee, on the stoop with Mother Sister, where she's brushing out her hair and Demare walks past and he's just doing his little business, like taking his hat off mm-hmm. and bowing to her and so on. And what Spike Lee's done here, the way that he uses these intersecting levels of acting styles amongst the ensemble, so you have you know pro- possibly more contemporary. Film actors like Danny Aiello and Totoro and and so on. And then you have people who are more of a different era, like Ozzy Davis, who seems to just have walked off a film set from maybe 20, 30 years prior. And then you're looking forward to Sam Jackson, the future Mm. of what a film star can be. And he's so good as Senor Love Daddy. Watching this in HD for the first time makes me realise just how much he plays with... He has this block... Mm that he's shooting around and you know, there may be something happening in the foreground, but there are always characters. Across the street, Demare might be passed out on a, on a chair and on a lawn, or uh, when Mookie's having a chat as his uh it's uh, Palm um
3: Chicken Parmesan. Chicken
2: Parmesan is going cold. senior Love Daddy's there like clearly shouting into his <laughs> microphone, Come on, Mookie, I want my food right now. <laughs> There's so much thought put into this that it just feels so visually rich as well as narratively rich.
3: Mm. Yeah, and it's kind of that one one street, and you're just going up and down it, mm-hmm. mostly kind of following Mookie on his deliveries, and each time you're getting all these different character developments, and yet yeah, you're seeing so much going on in the background. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's that amazing shot as well where um, Mookie kicks, is he called bugging Out?
4: Yeah. He yeah. kicks him
3: out of the restaurant, and it kind of goes through the glass in this one take, oh, yeah. follows their argument, and mm-hmm. then comes back in again. You just have these like amazing camera shots and... Editing techniques that just really kind of bring it all together. Yeah.
2: I think I said this on our Black Klansman episode last year, but Spike Lee is known as being this just full of energy, and sometimes to his detriment, and full of ideas and passion. But at the same time, he is one of the most just
4: classically talented filmmakers we have oh, going today. Yeah. The it's, way he it, knows how to use his craft is incredible. Absolutely. I mean, the dynamism here is like this is the kind of textbook mm-hmm. example, really. The way the camera moves this is what there's just stuff at the end where you kind of follow two characters and the camera will go out the door and do a 90-degree turn and then Mookie will just be standing there. And mm-hmm. it's like the way he's kind of connecting people. I think one of the interesting things about this film is that although you have all these intersecting lives, as you say, and Mookie is like almost connecting people as he's doing his, his rounds and taking like delivering pizzas, it never feels contrived. It never feels like these people have got to meet to get the story to this point. Actually, until the last half an hour, there kind of is no story, mm-hmm. you know? I think one of the fascinating things about it, and chilling things about it, is that it's about the suddenness of violence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of bubbling under, but you I don't think you, there's a point where you really think the film is going to, like, explode in the way it does. Mm. You have characters like Radio Rahim, who is... Um, There's a a great sequence where he has a sort of stand-up with some Puerto Mm -hmm. Ricans on who can play their boombox louder. (laughs) And again, beautifully filmed where the Puerto Ricans accept that he's won this round and then the camera sort of glides back to him and he's already walking off down the street. It was like an unnecessary Mm -hmm. thing, but he had to win it almost. Um, I think the power of the film is that it's such an empathetic portrait of a community Mm -hmm. that is kind of hopeful and works even when people like maybe John Turturro's character, who is kind of openly racist, there is a kind of like, well, he is sort of accepted as an idiot and nobody likes him, but we can carry on because we have a sort of certain sense of positivity. But then, you know, I think the film does take this turn that is more like, no, we this, this little stuff festers and expands and metastises and, you know, you're all of a sudden... You're on fire, and <laughs> there's a riot in the street. You know, it's it's shocking, mm-hmm. it's, it, and 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 so and like just every time, it just like gets me really. Yes.
2: What, what Spike Lee pulls off with the movie is is quite miraculous. That it's remembered as being this fun summer movie with a great soundtrack, quotable lines, but then it's also equally remembered as this angry polemic. Mm-hmm. And he the the fact that he was able to pull this off equally at this stage in his career and maybe as he went on he'd tip over in one direction rather than the other at various times but he's operating at his fullest capacity here at the height of his genius and it's just, you know I, I don't often give fives when we talk about ratings on this sh- on this show but this is 100% a five star movie for me and one to revisit over and over
1: mm.
4: what, One other thing I just want to mention about this rewatch <laughs> that I got from it is when you think about do the right thing, it's yeah. it's you think about Public Enemy and mm-hmm. um, fight the power, which is yeah. the, the, almost like the sort of theme song of the film. But I really noticed the actual score. Yeah, there's a kind of jazzy score by Bill Lee, I think it's named. Yeah, it. and lots of uh, Branford Marsalis
2: on the saxophone. Yeah, the yeah, through, yeah, yeah. Very
4: <laughs> melancholy, very kind of like almost sort of soulful yeah. vibe, like bubbling underneath. You have got this really, really kind of brash anger and. Really sad, soulful, mournful music coexisting at the same time, and 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 the actual score (laughs) makes the film feel so sadder earlier than I remember it being. Mm. You know, like the 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 way he's kind of almost slightly foreshadowing some stuff. I think it makes you ask questions like, is this as idyllic as it maybe seems? Are we on the road to ruin? You know, Mm. like sort of teasing it in a very in a super subtle way.
2: So, Steph, you said at university you went and kind of cleared up this blind spot for you. Mm. Did you have another Spike Lee film highlight that you might recommend off the back Um, of this?
3: I really like Crooklyn. Uh, I haven't watched it for a while, but um, I remember that one being kind mm. of a really good, like, coming-of-age story. I think it's also set in the same Mm. Brooklyn neighbourhood. But, yeah, I mean, do the right thing. You would just recommend it as a starting point Yeah, um, Spike Lee.
4: I think I've liked all all the films of his I've seen. Mm-hmm. I, I, one other one that I, I think is really fascinating is called Bamboozled. Yes, of course, which yeah, is from yeah. the nineties, which is his kind of digital video experiment. Which is, a, I think, is a bit more like m- him moving towards his more polemicky phase. Mm-hmm. But I think it's still like a very fascinating film about representation exploitation as well Mm -hmm. it's a film about a a new black and white minstrel show which against all expectations becomes very popular Mm -hmm. and it sort of takes it from there basically Mm -hmm. it's hard to see actually I don't think I'm not sure it's available like very widely but Mm -hmm. highly recommended one of the Wayans brothers is uh, I think Damon Wayans, I think. Uh, There's such a large Wayans family. (laughs) He's he's the lead and he's very good in it.
2: I'd recommend Malcolm X. For for me, as much as I like films from the whole span of his career, it's that first... Well, maybe not right at the beginning, but when he started getting big enough budgets to really have that canvas to show how much of a student of cinema craft he was, whilst also every second having his voice... Uh, heard throughout the film Mm -hmm. Uh, do the right thing and Malcolm X are the the, the two pinnacles for me and that's what I think he was getting back at with Black Klansman last year Mm -hmm. it's
4: it's interesting we do the right thing we know of him as this sort of polemicist Mm -hmm. and you know in the end of Malcolm X and the end of his more recent films Black Klansman Mm -hmm. being one he very much tells you his take on the situation. I think maybe why do the right thing is slightly raised in his canon. Is in it, he's more interested in the philosophy of war, you know, and mm-hmm. this idea of pitching these two views against one another because you have a, a Martin Luther King and Malcolm X quote both advocating different ways of, of protest: one nonviolent, one mm. violent. And the whole point of the film is it doesn't necessarily tell you which, you know the fact that it's called Do the Right Thing is ironic mm-hmm. because, you know, or paradoxical, there is no, you know, he's he's kind of saying that there is no right thing, you know. Well, we, we think the right thing would be to go and see Do the Right Thing yes. this weekend, <laughs>
2: unless maybe you're seeing Hobbs and Shaw. But Do the Right Thing for its 30th anniversary is in cinemas this week, courtesy of Park Circus. It's a strong recommendation from the round table here. Next week, we're going for... Blinded by the Light, the Bruce Springsteen soundtracked, coming of age film directed by Gurinder Chadha. We have Opus Zero, which I don't I've not heard much Willem about. Defoe, Willem as Defoe, as a, as a composer. I heard that Willem Dafoe has Italian nationality, which means that well, that's why he's in so many so European films, because he's classed as European talent for tax breaks.
4: Oh. Mm-hmm.
2: It's very interesting. Little tidbit there although maybe we'll get a call from Willem Dafoe's agent <laughs> telling us we're wrong. <laughs> And for film club, we have another classic that's back in cinemas. This is Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious, starring Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. I think that's kicking off a mini season of Cary Grant films at the BFI. That's that's maybe doing nice. a tour, isn't it? One of my favourite actors of all time. He's a good. Uh, He's a good one, isn't he? Any other business before
4: we sign off, David from the Little White Lies Towers? guess just echoing, you know, if you haven't already got multiple copies, then uh, run to the stores and pick up our latest issue, Little White Lies 80, with the souvenir on the cover. Animated issue with moving illustrations in it, and it's uh, inspired by the souvenir, which I'm sure we'll be talking about on a future episode coming soon.
2: Yes, very soon, in fact. Steph, anything happening with you you'd like to mention? Mm,
3: I'd just like to mention that Tokyo Drift is the best Fast and Furious <laughs> movie. Um so that should should that be can, my kind of
4: gateway to the
3: to the yeah, archive. That's okay. how you should get into it. That's right. the starter.
2: And of course, listeners, if you want to debate <laughs> Steph's <laughs> Steph's decision there to, to position Tokyo Drift at the at the peak of the Fast and Furious franchise, you can let us know at the usual channels, that is at Truth and Movies on Twitter, Truth and Movies at com via email or at the comments section at LWLies.com slash podcast. David, Steph, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7Digital production.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen